Good afternoon and welcome to the 127th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, I discuss the pandemic with two physicians based in Texas, Chris Strawn and Bonnie Raywatt. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and Send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 15th, 2020, there are 29,365,289 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. It's up from 29,114,477 cases yesterday, 6,570,889 of those are in the United States, up from 6,531,437 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 195,047 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 194,238. Yesterday in Texas, there have been 14,508 deaths 1,046 of those in Dallas County, where my guests I'll be speaking with today work, where I was born, actually, and 662 deaths in Tarrant County, which is where Fort Worth, Texas is, actually where, where I grew up. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. I'd like to read two obituaries today. Headline, Retired Pediatrician Belted Out Songs to Staff and Patients by Kent Babb. This appeared in the Washington Post, May 24th. Victor Rivera was the baritone in a barbershop quartet, but a solo was possible almost anywhere. He'd break into ragtime doll in his car belt out, you are my sunshine, through the hallways of his pediatrics office and hum, show me the way to go home as he listened to the lungs and heartbeats of a few thousand children over 30 years. Staffers at the practice in Langhorn sometimes rolled their eyes, though as the years and decades passed, Rivera's songs became the office soundtrack. Kathy Finley Costello spent 27 years working for Rivera and she came to view him as family. He attended the deliveries of her two sons, she said, teasingly asking the mother to be whether this was the reason he had to abandon his tennis match. When his patients grew up, he'd attend their weddings and care for their children. Costello's mother had worked as Rivera's office manager when he opened his practice, and back then it was just the two of them, Carrie Finley and Dr. Vick, waiting for the phone to ring. He gradually grew his business, expanded his patient database, and became a father figure to his employees. He'd bring the medical assistants and receptionists a scarf or a purse from trips overseas After Costello's divorce, Dr. Fick, a father of four, would slyly hand her a cash-filled envelope to make certain her sons had a good Christmas. When another longtime staffer, Sharon Nideline, saved enough money to take her three children to Walt Disney World, Rivera called her into his office. He handed her $100 and an instruction, buy something for yourself. He just took care of us, Nideline recalled. He always treated me like I was one of his children and he did little dad things. You'd go on vacation, got enough money, put gas in your car. Before he retired and sold his practice in 2017, Nightline said, Rivera negotiated employment contracts for staff members who wanted to remain with the practice. Rivera wasn't much good at staying away either, continuing to take shifts between vacations with his wife, Mila. The Rivera's most recent trip was to Dubai. Their return flight passed through New York in early March, and Nideline, who watered the couple's plants while they were gone, said Rivera tested positive for COVID-19 shortly after coming home. In the spring of 2019, Costello said Rivera paid a visit to her mother, his former office manager, Finley, was 90, and by then she had dementia. 
Still, Costello said, her mother's eyes widened when Dr. Vic walked in. After a few minutes of talking, Rivera did what he often did. He sang one more rendition of an old favorite. Everywhere that I roam, over land or sea or foam, you can always hear me singing this song. Show me, show me the way to go home. Headline is St. Luke's nurse practitioner dies from COVID-19 complications. This appeared in the Idaho Press, July 13th, 2020. A nurse practitioner with St. Luke's Children's Pediatrics in Caldwell, Idaho, died from complications related to COVID-19 in early July. Samantha Hickey had been a healthcare provider for 15 years in Canyon County, part of the time at St. Luke's and part of the time at St. Alphonsus, according to a St. Luke's virtual press briefing held in July. Hickey, a wife and mother to four children, was 45, which would make her the youngest person in Idaho reported to have died from a confirmed case of COVID-19, according to the Idaho Department of Health and Welfare data. She died in July at St. Luke's Meridian Medical Center. Neither St. Luke's nor her husband were aware of any underlying conditions, according to hospital spokeswoman Anita Cassay. Knowing Sam and knowing where she was, this was a pretty big shock to the St. Luke's children's community. St. Luke's children's physician, Dr. Alicia Lachiando said during the briefing, Hickey's husband told hospital staff he does not want the loss of his wife to be in vain, Lachiando said. He would really think that she would want people to know that this is important and that the recommendations are not made lightly. And all of the work that we're doing in the healthcare field and the public health field is with the utmost concern for our community. I think the best way that Hickey's patients and her patients' families could honor her would be to take her messages to heart and take this seriously. Wear masks in public and in group settings, wash hands, work on social distancing, Lachiando said. Know that any actions that you're taking potentially could protect someone else, maybe someone in your circle or maybe someone three circles down, but every precaution that we take is to hopefully prevent as much heartbreak and devastation for families of this valley that we can. I'd like to turn to our discussion for today and introduce our guests. And I should have confirmed previously how to pronounce Dr. Bonnie Raywatt's last name so she can correct me now. Am I saying that? No. I think we just need to... No, sorry, it's Rowett. Rowett, okay. I apologize for that, and I should have gotten that straight before we went on. Dr. Bonnie Rowett is an infectious disease specialist practicing in Dallas, Texas since 1996. She's a medical director in the Infection Prevention and Control Division for Medical City Dallas Hospital. She was the medical coordinator for that hospital's COVID-19 response. She attended medical school at the State University of New York, Buffalo, she did a residency in internal medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis and a fellowship in infectious disease at Washington University School of Medicine. My second guest is Dr. Chris Strawn. Full disclosure, I've known Chris Strawn since I believe 1983. He can correct me on that if, uh, if I need to be corrected. Long time. Chris Strawn practices. Is that about right? Yeah, I think so. Go back a little ways. Chris Strawn practices general pediatrics with Forest Lane Pediatrics in Dallas. He's been in practice there since 2003 after he completed his pediatrics residency and chief residency at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. He attended medical school at Baylor College of Medicine and completed his undergraduate studies at Texas A&M. Dr. Strawn served as chairman of the Department of Pediatrics at Medical City Children's Hospital in 2011 and 2012, and has been selected as one of the best pediatricians in Dallas by D Magazine nine times. He's also been recognized as a mom-approved doctor by DFW Child Magazine since 2012. Chris lives in Lakewood with his wife and four sons, enjoys golf, reading, cooking, traveling, and being active with his kids as a coach and spectator for youth sports. And I also know he's a big music fan, and I want to Thank you both, uh, Bonnie and Chris, for making time to come on COVID calls today. So let's start. Happy to do it. 
start out the way we usually do, which is just to ask people um, where they're calling from and, and what the pandemic situation is there. Bonnie, can I start with you, please? Sure. So we're a tertiary care hospital, which means we see a lot of referrals from other places, but we have been very, very busy with COVID as all the hospitals in the areas have been. Finally, within the last couple of weeks, we've seen a decrease in hospital admissions, and we were finally able to close one of our COVID intensive care units yesterday for the first time uh, really since I believe it was uh, June. Um, so we're thrilled about that. We're very concerned about what's going to happen in the future, both with the post-Labor Day issues, uh, post school openings and college openings, and of course, influenza coming up in season in the fall. Uh, so it's been quite a run. Uh, the month of July was one I would not ever want to do over again and hope we don't have to do in the future with regards to the sheer number of patients, acuity of illness, and just the whole you know, stressed out picture from the medical staff. So. How do the numbers in Dallas, Bonnie, uh, compared to other major Texas cities. Do you have a sense of that, uh, Houston, San Antonio? Yeah, I mean, there was sort of a bit of a wave. I think the uh, South Texas area was hit very hard shortly after we were peaking. And I think all the areas are kind of settling down a little bit. Um, I think Houston has settled down. I think they're still a bit more active than we are. And I'm not really sure about what's going on currently in South Texas, but I know their resources were very, very strained in uh, the last month or so. Chris, same question to you, where you're calling in from, and, and I presume it's looking similar to where Bonnie is, but maybe if you want to elaborate on what you're seeing right now in terms of the pandemic. Sure, uh, yeah, so I'm calling also from Dallas. I'm actually working from home uh, this afternoon, but uh, Bonnie and I basically work in the same hospital. So uh, the pediatrics experience though has been a lot different. Uh, we've just uh, I'm an outpatient general pediatrician, and uh, so I don't take care of kids in the hospital. You know, we have a pediatric hospitalist service that helps us out for those hospitalized kids. So my little part in all of this has just been trying to run a general pediatrics office and keep kids going with their checkups and um, and vaccines for routine illnesses. And, and uh, honestly, the biggest uh, issue has just been fielding so, so many questions over all this time uh, to help families navigate this. And uh, the very good news is that uh, our patients have just not been that sick. O overall, uh, low numbers of kids getting sick, low severity uh, of our patients who have tested positive and, and, and been sick. So, you know, very thankful uh, that the kids have done all right. Uh, but, you know, certainly families are stressed and have tons of questions, and that's what we've mainly helped with. Well, I appreciate your time today, and I've spoken with many different types of experts on COVID calls, uh, but very few physicians uh, for reasons that people understand. We just haven't really asked many doctors and nurses, um, haven't really asked many essential workers of any types. Um, sociologists and public health researchers are essential in their way, but they're not in the clinic. So we appreciate these perspectives. I want to start, um, Chris, let me ask you first about this. Can you take us a little bit into the situation there in the DFW Metroplex around getting tests, around um, PPE availability, ventilators, data access? You know, it's been a mixed picture across the country, and uh, I'd like to get a little bit of an update that on that from Dallas. Sure, and Bonnie may be able to help me with uh, ventilator issues, because uh, that's more in the hospital setting, but. As far as testing goes, you know, that was a massive frustration early on. It just took so long to have any testing capability. And honestly, it, it seemed like it was all these uh, entrepreneurial labs that were able to uh, roll things out most uh, quickly, at least uh, in the outpatient setting. Uh, so it, it, that was great. They were doing their best and they, you know, came through quickly, but then they were very quickly overwhelmed and swamped because they were small operations and they went from, you know, really quick turnaround time and good customer service to suddenly long waits and lost samples and uh, difficult communication. And I mean, I can't fault them. They were doing their best and they were swamped like everybody else. But, uh, you know, it was just very frustrating to not have uh, good access to testing or, or really to know how to advise families. We started doing drive-through testing um, in 
outside of our office. Uh, they wouldn't allow it at one of our locations. I have a, a total of 15 docs in three locations in our practice. Uh, and we were able to do uh, drive-through testing outdoors uh, and just, it was very much making things up as we went along. Um, and, you know, as we went a little further along, uh, the testing access got better, um, it, but the turnaround times were still pokey. Uh, by, I believe, um, I think we got the, the rapid antigen test in the office uh, about six weeks ago. Uh, and that's the um, Sophia Quidel rapid COVID antigen test and gives a result within 15 minutes. And uh, we've been really happy with that capability. So that's been a total game changer for our practice. Um, PPE was um, a little bit scarce. We never really ran out, but there were times when we were very nervous uh, that we might run out of uh, gowns, especially uh, we were real low on hand sanitizer and other cleaning products uh, in the office. Uh, the Dallas County Medical Society came through and, and was able to get us uh, materials. Our private medical group, we're, we're a member of a, of a slightly larger medical group, and they were able to come through with, with some gear. Uh, but that was, that was a huge challenge. Um, and um, yeah, I may kind of turn over the ventilator and data question to, to Bonnie, but uh, that that was our experience in the office. Yeah, so the uh, the good news is with regards to ventilators is because of the knowledge that we've gained on how to take care of people with COVID and there's still not enough quote magic bullets, but basic care issues, things like putting people on their stomachs to help them breathe, uh, using steroids, which are an inexpensive medication that we've used for a lot of other applications and using them more appropriately, keeping people on preventive blood thinners uh, we've done a long, uh, done a lot of work as far as keeping people off of ventilators. So we're never actually at the point where we're ever in danger of running out of ventilators. We are certainly strapped for beds uh, at various times, especially in July. Um, with regards to the testing, back in March when people started coming in sick to their emergency room, it was awful because the only testing capability we had was through the county and then the state health departments and there was terrible lags and people would have to be kept in isolation as we waited and waited and waited for this data to come back. Um, then in the third week in March, our hospital developed its own in-house PCR testing with turnaround within hours, and that was a total game changer. Uh, still very stressful for people in the community though, and now we're just starting to bring on board more rapid tests for different types of screening, which is really what we need. One of the things that's been helpful is the state has purchased some rapid testing for some of the nursing facilities and the state of Texas is requiring routine testing of nursing home staff and things like that. So initially we were seeing, you know, do, not a dozen maybe, but several patients from the same nursing facility or skilled nursing or assisted living all coming in from the same facility uh, within a few days of one another. It was mm -hmm. just terribly dramatic. And that kind of thing is actually tapered off quite a bit. Uh, I would say the biggest challenge now is we need more rapid testing in the community uh, to really you know, there's sort of two different things about testing. One is you want to know whether that person is sick and can even after the virus has started waning, you can still have COVID complications, which is really what gets people into trouble on ventilators and whatnot. But then there's also the question of transmissibility. You know, we need to pick up the people that are sick with virus, that have virus rather, but who do not have any symptoms. And that's where the role for the rapid Quidel type tests, rapid tests that you can get within minutes are extremely important for things like kids getting back to school, kids getting on a sports team, you know, people going back to work kind of thing. That's where I think that kind of testing is gonna be very invaluable going forward. And so we still have a definite need with that. There's still not enough. Uh, we were blessed with never quote, running out of PPE. Uh, some of the gowns were kind of creative and things for a while with our you know, routine vendors getting some quality control issues for bid and things like that. Um, you know, we're, we're fortunate in our facility to have what we call HEPA filters uh, in the patient's rooms to add an extra layer of air scrubbing, if you will, in addition to our PPE, uh, which makes it a little bit more comforting for the staff to go in there, especially with what we call aerosolized producing generating procedures and things of that nature. So we've been fortunate in that regard. Um, you know, probably it's just, it's really uh, sort of the emotional toll of having to be on your toes all the time with the PPE that I think is sort of the most wearing on the medical staff. 
Bonnie, let me just follow up a little bit on on this um, issue. You know, you you said you came close to running out of beds, and I don't have any way to conceptualize that. I mean, when you say that, I think about you know movies. I mean, I think about you know cult, you know television programs and things where we see you know things happening in the emergency department very dramatic you know kind of representations about that but what i mean when you say the hospital was running out of beds what can you say a little bit more about about that yeah so it's not actually just physical beds uh you run out of nurses to take care of patients in those beds and we're a very large facility we had a lot of capacity but there was a time in late july when we had people very very sick patients stacked up in an emergency room who were not in regular hospital beds we didn't have any of the nightmare scenarios like you saw video footage of in spain and italy for a time where they had people laying on the floor of emergency rooms it was never like that but we had people that were waiting for inpatient beds that would be considered intensive care status who were in the emergency room under normal circumstances those people would be brought up to the unit right away and we didn't have the staff and the places to put them kind of thing so it was a scramble for a time uh, fortunately, it was uh, we never had the overwhelmed capacity that we saw in some of the facilities in New York, where they had you know trailers with bodies and things outside the hospitals because of just being overwhelmed with more, more capabilities and things like that. It never got to that spot in our facility or even the uh, safety net hospital of uh, Parkland in Dallas. It was certainly very very busy, but we never quite you know got that extreme here. On the data side of things, can you say a little bit about how that how that works. I mean, the rest of us get information wherever we can because we don't have a professional responsibility. We pull it from whatever's on TV or the news media or CDC. Um, how does that work in, in your office, Bonnie? I mean, are, are you have a, a hotline to the Texas Department of Health, the State Department of Health, or are you in contact with CDC, or is there some other way that information is distributed? Yeah, the Dallas County uh, Health Department gives, a, we have a conference call every Wednesday for physicians and stuff specifically about COVID. And the data from there is probably our most reliable local source. Um, one of the issues with the state health departments is they rely on all the local laboratories to give them data about positive testing. And sometimes there's glitches where there's either computer related issues or you know just reporting issues where there'll be a big bolus of cases where all of a sudden you'll get 100 extra cases and there's been so it's been a little bit of a you know a little bit blips in the curve that aren't necessarily newly diagnosed COVID cases which makes it a bit confusing but over time those things tend to even out and the health department's always quick to say well we had you know like 300 new cases last week but 140 of them were cases that were left over from July that are just not being reported or whatever mm -hmm. uh, so it doesn't mean that the data is not entirely liable it just means it's not always as timely as we would like it gets really confusing though sometimes with the death rates. And one of the reasons for that, when a physician fills out a death certificate, there's always an immediate cause of death. And then there's what we call the comorbidities, other things that contributed to that patient's death. And so someone may have died of a stroke, which happened to one of my patients in his thirties, but the immediate cause of that stroke was COVID-19. And you know, so the health department has to glean that data. They've helped to streamline that by going directly from the death certificates, not from hospital reported data is, was doing it at the beginning of the epidemic. And so they're trying to smooth those issues out too so that we don't miss cases that were definitely related to COVID-19. That being said, there's still the excess mortality thing where someone dies at home and you don't always know is it COVID related or not. And sometimes the health department in Dallas has actually tested people, especially early on when we're trying to get a sense of where the community of disease was and what were our numbers they actually tested people who were found at home and found them to be COVID positive. And so that's an ongoing issue too that contributes to the stats and why there's sometimes lags as these investigations go on. Just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking with Bonnie Rowett and Chris Strawn today, getting the physician's perspective of COVID-19 coming from Dallas. Chris, let me ask you a similar question.
question from the pediatrician's point of view, what kind of data sources do you rely on in the midst of this pandemic? So, you know, recently, I, I, similar to, to Bonnie, it's been a little confusing. Uh, lately, uh, there's uh, the city of Dallas has uh, published a, a, a daily case count and that shows a total number of cases and that may lump in 200 cases from uh, August and 100 cases from July into the total number. And you have to kind of do the math yourself to figure out how many were actual positives from yesterday. Uh, so that's helped though to have this daily reliable report that's coming in uh, to get a feel for that. Um, you know, probably just like other, other folks, uh, finding your favorite daily reporting website. Uh, the, the one that I've liked the best is the 91divoc.com that's got these uh, visualizations um, based on uh, countries and states, uh, also normalized by population. And so that was really just the shocking thing to see how poorly the U.S. was doing and, and how poorly Texas was doing by July and, and uh, beginning of August. Um, so, you know, I, I don't know that we had this amazing hotline of uh, secret uh, valid information or data. We were just, just like every other person who's curious about the numbers, having to kind of find it for yourself, uh, aside from the resource that, that Bonnie mentioned and, uh, and the, the county uh, daily email that we've been getting lately. Well, I don't want to drag you into the politics too much, um, Chris, but just to get a sense of it, you know, because, um, you know, I'm from Texas and I understand that this is a state that sometimes you have municipal government that can be one party and you can have state government that's different. That's a different party. And I think we'd like to think party politics shouldn't come into um, medicine or into this pandemic, but it obviously has. And the Texas governor was pretty outspoken. Um, about the steps that he was gonna that he was gonna follow, which were in sync with the Trump administration, how does that, if it does, filter out into the way that physicians like you have to do your work day by day? You know, it, it was really really clear, I think, to the physicians that uh, Texas was reopening too quickly, uh, and that would really I would count that in, in May. Uh, Bonnie, would you agree that was the time? Yeah, the yeah Memorial Day was really kind of the dividing oh. line where we really started getting into trouble. Right. Uh, and so it was just when uh, staying at home and wearing masks was starting to work and, and things were looking a little bit better and kids, they'd already made the announcement that there was no, uh, no more back to school for the spring semester. Uh, and it was just way too soon. And it was super predictable and obvious. Uh, the, uh, the Dallas County Commissioner, who was really the, the point person on this, was, uh, I think, pretty sensible about it and, and was not in agreement or not uh, necessarily uh, following the line with what uh, the Texas governor was recommending. And, and I was on his side of that. It was very clear that, um, you know, we were reopening too soon. And you know, the the flip side though is just the variability in a state the size of Texas from one county to another. Uh, there, you know, we actually still went uh, on our little spring break vacation, but we went to Big Bend and there were absolutely, there truly zero cases there. And for another couple of months after, I was still keeping an eye on that county and there were still zero, no cases at all. And uh, you know, advising some of my patients that drive in from, uh, you know, deep East Texas about return to school issues. You know, my advice would start out, so we need to be really cautious. Your child has a high risk condition. Uh, and they're like, wait a minute, what, what county are you guys in? And I would look that up and I'm like, well, you've had 43 total cases from the beginning of this. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, maybe it's all right to go to school because your kid needs to learn, your kid needs services and your kid gets speech therapy and physical therapy at school. Uh, so there, there are all these little bitty microclimates that, that are have very unique circumstances. Um, so that's kind of arguing it both ways, but um, certainly here in Dallas, we reopened too soon. Bonnie, can I get your perspective on that? 
Yeah, it was it was extremely frustrating. Um, for one thing, I would just say, and I, I don't disagree at all with the importance of trying to get kids back to school, but one of the challenges is some of these rural counties didn't have cases because they weren't testing. And if you have 40 cases, you probably have 400 cases or more um, that just are going undetected because of people who are having the virus asymptomatically and uh, not everyone gets symptoms and things like that, and not everyone's tested. Uh, but one of the frustrations, I know early on, I remember talking to one of the intensive care unit nurses with family members who were arguing that the COVID was all overblown, it was a hoax, it wasn't really a big deal, while they're taking care of people dying on ventilators. And it was just sort of jarring. And I remember seeing a woman that was walking through our lobby. Uh, we, we started requiring masks on, you know, for visitors and things, and we closed down visitation entirely for a time. And now we've opened it up with a fairly stringent policy. But she was walking through the hall and she goes, how come everyone's wearing a mask? Do I need to wear a mask? And she said, I'm, I'm not from here. <laughs> and so it's just the difference in perspective between rural Texas and here. And we do get a lot of patients from a lot of outlying areas and things. And there are definitely microclimates and activity and things like that. But I think there hasn't been a county, I think at this point in Texas that hasn't had cases of COVID. And so it's unfortunately, you know, no one's quote, in the clear was what makes it really challenging. Bonnie, you were describing the peak of cases there in the hospital in a very moving way, what we're looking at in July. To what extent did it help that you'd already seen that, and I'm sure you were watching it closely, here where I am in New Jersey and in New York in March and April, that was already, you know, those patterns were on TV every every night. Did that help you at all, or it's, it doesn't help that much? Well, you just no. have to face it when it comes. Yeah, it absolutely helped because everyone that was in the trenches there was trying to get information out on what works, what doesn't work. There's an incredible amount of information and, you know, listen to a virology podcast. It was terribly helpful because they'd already been there, done that, and had a lot of information that we absolutely learned from and sort of didn't have to reinvent the wheel and were able to get, like, for example, the prone ventilation business where people lay on their stomachs, their breathing is improved with COVID. That actually includes people way before they get on a ventilator it's easy, it's cheap, who knew? And so things like that, we definitely benefited from information from Europe and then from our colleagues in the Northeast about what we should do, what we shouldn't do. And so I really feel like we were blessed in that regard that we're at least going into it with you know more knowledge than what they had at the time they were fighting their worst peak. Chris, take us inside the pediatrics practice a little bit as we get into you know the late spring and into the summer people stop coming to the doctor? I mean, what what was the day-to-day -day life like in the practice? Yeah, so when, when we went to shelter in place in Dallas, um, it was essentially down to zero. We were bringing in uh, essential newborn visits uh, and that was really it. Uh, and so uh, very gradually after that, we started ramping back up. A part of it was developing our own protocols within the office of uh, wearing proper PPE, training our staff, uh, spacing out appointment times, figuring out geographically within the office how we can manage patient flow uh, safely. Uh, and honestly, you know, we were already kind of seeing that, that the, the kids were less affected. And so we were much more worried about keeping our doctors safe and keeping my staff safe and keeping the parents of my patients safe. Uh, and so, you know, it was just a real gradual ramp up after that. And there was a, a several week span, probably late April, early May, where um, we were capable and ready and families did not want to come in. Um, and so the, the level of illness, uh, aside from COVID, had dropped to next to nothing at that point. So our number of sick visits was not the problem, but it was, there was clearly a stack up of kids who were overdue for their checkups and overdue th for their vaccines and preventative care. And, and so it just took time. It took time for families to uh, realize that they can safely come on back in. And we did a lot of messaging to the parents uh, in our practice, email and website and Facebook and every uh, communication media that we could uh, just to let families know it's safe to come in. You need to come in because we're going to get behind on things and, and miss things if we're if we're not getting back at it. Um, and so since then, it's just been kind of a gradual ramp up. I would say through the rest of the summertime, we were 
probably 80 to 90 percent of normal uh, for for that time of year, which is usually a time when all the older kids are coming in for their healthy checkups. Um, and that's about where we stand now. I haven't seen a major bump up in um, sick visits yet from the restart of school, although we're getting a lot of phone calls um, where a child goes home with a stomach ache because they were nervous about going to school, uh, but they get sent home by the school nurse and are required to get a doctor's note or in some cases, even a COVID test uh, for any absence. Um, so, you know, we're managing that and doing a lot of that with telemedicine um, and uh, helping families juggle that requirement. So that's been the arc for us. <laughs> It sounds like you now you're in a, a, in a relatively large practice. Is that right, Chris? Yes. Yeah. So three locations and 15 pediatricians. Okay. So I, I'm trying to get my mind around the financial implications of this a little bit, you know, because for small businesses, this period of time has been devastating. Um, and I don't know how many, you know, small family practices are, are left in big cities, but I know in the Northeast, there are quite a few, um, and they're distributed around the city. And I've wondered about, I haven't seen much reporting about this, how doctors might have one or two physicians in a small practice, how they might be working through this time, particularly, like you said, Chris, when there were months for people, if they didn't have to go, they weren't going to go to the doctor. Right. Uh, so, you know, our we made a commitment early on uh, that we were going to do our very darndest to keep all of our employees uh, and not furlough anybody and not let anybody go. And so we did um, go through the PPP loans uh, and the EIDL loans for the business. Um, and that did not, uh, that was not appropriate and was not used for physician salaries. And so the doctors took a major pay cut um, and still still are much lower than than uh, than we were before. And, uh, you know, no need to cry for us. That's what we wanted to do and needed to do for our employees. We've got about 50 employees total and have kept everybody. Um, they may not have gotten as many hours if they're hourly workers. You know, they we were uh, essentially guaranteeing that they could get at least 30 hours, which is the criteria for full time to make sure they could maintain their health insurance benefits, for example. Um, but that was the, the commitment uh, for us to, to keep everybody and, uh, and do our best. Um, and so, you know, now everybody's getting typical hours and the doctors are ramping back up, but are not back to our baseline. Um, so you know, that was that was huge. It was very stressful uh, and, and a real scary time. That was a kind of a, it felt like a existential crisis for the practice for there for a little while. Well, it sounds like it was. I mean, did you have anything that approximated a, um, a plan uh, of some sort in that moment? It sounds like you were improvising. That's what we were doing. Yeah, it was, we were having uh conference calls several times a week, um, late into the evening, just amongst the partners to, to talk about it and just have real hard, honest conversations. Like, how low can we go? What, what, what can we wait on? <laughs> how can we trim the fat and keep, but keep everybody? And uh, that's, that's just exactly what it was. We're a small business, a small, you know, less than 50 employees. And that's not counting uh, the physicians. Um, and just had to make it through it. Just to remind folks, you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about the physician's perspective on COVID-19 with Chris Strawn and Bonnie Rowett. Bonnie, if you don't mind, uh, let me take you back to medical school momentarily. Uh, you're an infectious disease expert. Did you, what in your training prepared you for these past few months? Well, in infectious disease, we always knew there was going to be a pandemic because there's been epidemics before. And the infectious disease, because the word on the street was, was going to be a respiratory virus of some kind. We kind of figured it was going to be some stripe of influenza. However, we had the SARS-1 and the MERS uh, epidemics as kind of warnings. And it was almost like seven year gaps between all of them. So we should have been more ready than we were. Um, there's been a lot of influenza pandemic preparedness 
and that's actually helped us in COVID, uh, although our response has still been, you know, I guess I would just say disappointing uh, to not get too political about it, but there's been networks and things of syndromic surveillance, meaning what kind of illness are people having across the country? What patterns are you seeing? Sharing information of that kind. And just the basic science that's allowed us to figure out, you know, what the heck this virus was. And despite the frustration of we want a vaccine tomorrow, we want antivirals yesterday, uh, the, the pace of the science on this has been absolutely amazing. And the fact that we can even discuss having something like an mRNA vaccine in this short period of time coming from lab phase three trials is astounding. So from a purely science point of view, as horrible as the epidemics has been, it is fascinating, you know, just the pace of the information that we've learned. Um, but uh, it's just, it's interesting. If you look at the literature on epidemics and, you know, the Journal of the Plague Year, these kind of things, going back in time, uh, the Decameron, all these things, it's like everyone's first response when they have a pandemic is, or epidemic is denial. And I don't think we've been any different in this one than we've been in the past. And so you think you're ready, you think you're prepared. And, you know, even one of the most affluent countries in the world, there can still be some stumbles. And, you know, it's interesting that some of the things that have made the most, the most interventions in this across the world have been what we call the non-pharmacologic interventions, you know, physical distancing and, and face masks. It's kind of ironic, despite the high, high track twist, that it all kind of gets down to that. How are you finding time to read Boccaccio and Daniel Defoe in the midst of this situation that, that you're in? Or maybe that's how one of the ways you cope. And it's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about is how the physicians you've worked with in the hospital there have coped with this stress. I mean, as a historian, I would offer that sometimes history is helpful because you can see that people have been through these types of crises before. What's it been like coping with the day-to-day -day there? Well, I have to say it's, it's emotionally exhausting. One of the sort of comments I made, I'm an infectious disease specialist, but I kind of half joked that I'm also a family medicine specialist and that unfortunately we're seeing whole families come into our intensive care unit. I mean, three, four family members from the same family coming in, and that's absolutely emotionally wearing, obviously for the families, but also for the staff. And so just trying to take mental time away. I mean, one of the biggest challenges has been there's been so much information to keep up with. And earlier on, I could have said, okay, I'm not reading any more journal articles after 9.30 at night, because otherwise I don't get any sleep. Um, and just try to do things. I mean, I think there's an awful lot of uh, binge watching on Netflix among some of my ICU colleagues and things like that when they do wind up having time off. And there's a lot of camaraderie. I mean, there's been really good souls that I've worked with in the intensive care unit, which has been extremely helpful. So. The, it, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, in most of the country, we were, aside from our families, we were in isolation for periods of time in which most Americans have never experienced. We were not at the workplace. I was not with my students. And yet you had the, the opposite. I mean, the situation you were you were with the team, you were with patients. Uh, it's been a part of the story of this pandemic that I think has not been as understood because you've all been so busy doing that work. But how is the, team different now than it was in July, would you say, Bonnie? I think people are still very cautious, obviously, because this is a disease that we see kill people. But there's a little less abject terror about what we don't know about transmission in particular. And, you know, are we able to keep ourselves safe? And I think the answer to that is yes. And blessedly, as we've watched over several months now, we've had very few nosocomial cases of COVID-19 to our staff. There have been healthcare workers here that have had COVID, uh, but a lot of them have acquired it through community transmission, family members and things like that. And so I think just the reassurance of if you do these things, you can be safe and still take care of these people definitely eases the stress level quite a bit. And as I mentioned, we've never been so dire with our PPE shortages that, that you really feel like you're putting your life on the line just walking in a room. And that's obviously incredibly helpful, um, you know, so I think that's helped. I think also just the fact that we've seen people get better. Um, I know a lot of the hospitals in New York do this little clap out thing when somebody gets discharged and stuff. And 
Uh, we don't do that per se, but there's just this collective sigh of relief when someone gets out of the intensive care unit, especially if we manage to not have to have them go on the ventilator. And you just see the wind column. And there are an awful lot of winds. Um, that perspective gets distorted with the awful stuff that we see, but we are seeing more winds than we did. And mm. that helps too. Chris, Bonnie's been telling us the mental health side of it from from inside the hospital. What What have you seen? So, you know, a few different things. I would say early on, uh, it was it was a challenge amongst the doctors uh, to support each other, to make decisions together, uh, kind of reminding us to take care of each other. You know, I, I remember uh, saying at one point, you know, some people eat too much and some people eat too little. And I've tried both uh, over the past few weeks. <laughs> You know, you really you need to sleep. You need to exercise. You need to, uh, you know, hug your loved ones and and uh, try to you know uh, unwind when you can. Um, it's been really hard uh, keeping up the morale of our staff uh, because it's like like Bonnie said though. We, you know, thankfully we're kind of past the point of just being completely afraid. We offered our employees the opportunity. Like, if you just can't do it, that's okay. You know. You can take a leave and your position will be here when you're feeling ready to come back. And, and if you did that uh, early on, that would have been April or so. Um, and similarly, you know, we, to my knowledge, we've not had any transmission within our office. Uh, we've had a few employees who, you know, clearly picked it up out in the community uh, from friends and family, uh, but have done well uh, and are back at work after their proper isolation time and so and recovery time and so forth um so you know that's that's been the 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 challenge is realizing that this is clearly a marathon that's still going and going and we can't let our guards down uh or slip up because it's still out there um and so you know the, the mental health aspect for my patients though is still significant um Definitely you're seeing a lot of kids with anxiety and a lot of kids with depression and a lot of kids with uh, an uptick in overweight and obesity. And it, they're, they're suffering, um, they're, whether they're old enough to really think through it and understand it, or whether they're just absorbing stress from their parents and their, and their family, we're, we're seeing it, it's, it's real. And the kids are, are suffering. Um, and so we'll, we'll see how, how that comes along. You attribute that to being out of school or something you just said was really interesting, picking it up just in the ambient environment of how adults talk or, you know, what do you, what do you ascribe that those increases in depression, anxiety for kids? You know, I think it's probably both. Um, there are some kids who are introverts and are 100% content to stay at home. Uh, one of my one of my partners, you know, who's describing his daughter is just living her best quarantine life because she's uh, artsy and a musician and is creative and just hanging out at home and having the time uh, to do these wonderful things. And so she's thriving. Uh, and you know, then there are other kids who really need uh, to be around other people um, and uh, and need to be in. Uh, around other kids and, and in school to, to really have that positive energy. Um, it, you know, I would say um, it, it, it can certainly go either way. The, the ones that I worry about, um, you know, are the ones who are that extroverted way and, and need people, but the, if their parents are anxious or depressed or, or whatever, it just sort of becomes an echo chamber and they're not hearing any other options or any other voices. Uh, and so it, it's, um, you know, that those are kids who kind of need to realize, oh, okay, not everybody's feeling this way. I'm not the only one uh, to kind of get through that, uh, that challenge in a healthy way. Bonnie, I've seen uh, news reports talk about the effect of um, what seemed to be like missing illnesses right now. Uh, the normal numbers of um, heart-related 
you know, heart attacks or um, people coming in with other kinds of infectious diseases, those numbers have have gone down. Are you seeing that trend there? Yeah. And how do you account for something like that? Yeah, it's disturbing. We see things, for example, in the hospital, not in the COVID wards, of people with diabetic foot infections, for example, uh, which are just neglected. And people wind up losing an extremity, for example, when things could have been caught earlier. We may have been able to get on it and avoid that kind of problem. Uh, we see people with heart failure because they just wait too long to come in because they're afraid of COVID and they don't want to come to the hospital. So I think it's definitely a thing. I've heard from my oncology colleagues about people forgoing their cancer follow-ups and their cancer checkups and you know delaying follow-up testing and whatever. So it's definitely something we're worried about. I know in my own office, trying to get my HIV patients to touch base, you know, many of whom are doing well, but they can't just fall off the map. We have to make sure that they're on target and make sure there's no issues going on. So it's been having to you know, reach out to people and say, we still need to be in touch some way, somehow during all this. We can't just let these other illnesses go by the wayside because they're not going away. That really underlines, you know, something you were both talking about earlier, that importance of really clear risk communication and bending the curve as quickly as possible so that you don't get these sort of uh, effects where, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's even a clinical name for what you've just been describing, but if people putting off what are necessary treatments uh, because they're maybe they're, I guess they're weighing the two risks. They're saying, well, if I miss two or three visits versus getting COVID, I'm gonna just miss those few visits. Is that how that breaks down, Kobe? Uh, Bonnie, Bonnie is, or is there something else? Yeah, I think it's interesting. There are definitely different perceptions of, perceptions of what risk is. In a hospital, oh, hospital has COVID patients, therefore it's scary. Everybody in this facility is wearing a mask all the time. The same can't be said for your local grocery store, that these people aren't having quite the existential you know, crises about going to get their dinner. Um, it, you know, it, so I think it is a little bit of a perspective that we need to be reassuring. If the, the terror is real, but we need to explain to people, you know, this is what we're doing to keep you safe. And, you know, I think it's important to not forego regular medical care because there's all sorts of long-term consequences with that. Well, there's a couple more things I uh, want to get to before we finish our conversation today. I want to be thinking forward a little bit. One of the things that I've been reading about is this, um, what's come to be called, I guess, slow COVID or a sort of slow recovery from COVID. Um, Bonnie, could you speak to that? First, if you're seeing patients that are slow to recover and what that means as they go from sort of acute phase to other phases of the disease. Yeah, so kind of simply put, there's basically three phases of COVID infection. There's sort of the first week when people may not be that sick. Sometimes around day five to seven, they start coming into the hospital. In the second week of illness is when we can see what we call the cytokine storm effects with the immune system where people start getting very ill and we wind up having significant respiratory symptoms. And then the third week and following, we have issues, especially with increasing clotting disorders where people can have heart problems, kidney problems, liver problems, strokes, and that sort of thing. And there's what we call a tail to this illness for sure. And the term that we're using now is the long haulers, where people have recovered from their COVID, but they're still just not back to normal. And there's a lot we're still learning about that. Um, I have a colleague here who's a cardiologist that has seen some elite student athletes from one of the local universities with basically myocarditis. And these students are peak performance athletes, and yet you know, there's dozens of them that after having COVID, they can't quite shake it. They aren't anywhere near their baseline performance status. So there's a lot we need to know about that. Some of those people, I think, will go on to get better. Um, some of the older folks, though, they may have some chronic lung issues that were severe, like on ventilators and things like that. There may, I don't doubt that there's going to be some lasting damage because what we call pulmonary fibrosis or scarring in the lung uh, that's going to have some effects. So that's still something that we're still learning. We just haven't been treating this SARS-CoV-2 virus long enough to know what to do best in the months after someone recovers. thinking about the ways that pediatrics might change as we go into next year. I know that uh, telemedicine is one of the issues that people have been talking about. Are you, are you 
integrating that into the practice there? Yes, absolutely. So uh, we've probably done 100 times more telemedicine visits than what we had done pre-COVID. We had the capability to do it. We were just starting to kind of figure out what uh, issues it was useful for, uh, but we've ramped way, way up on that. And that's actually been really helpful. Uh, it's efficient for us. It's very convenient for the families. It just minimizes any risk or you know, basically eliminates any risk in, in that encounter. Uh, it's not perfect for everything. I can't look in your ears you know, with a telemedicine visit. I can't feel your belly. Um, and so we've been creative, though, to start out with a telemedicine visit. And if it turns out you still need an in-person um, physical exam component or a test run, we can shorten your period of time in the office and um, make the whole thing as efficient as possible. Um, and so absolutely, we're going to keep that in our bag of tricks uh, once, uh, once, quote unquote, things are back to normal. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm very confident that's going to be something that sticks around. And, you know, I could even I, I, I sort of daydream about if I'm old and gray and, and slowing down, I can do a good number of telemedicine visits from home or I can do t telemedicine visits from anywhere in the world, honestly. Uh, and uh, that's just a cool way to kind of extend a career, perhaps. <laughs> So uh, you and I are the same age, so I don't really appreciate you talking about getting old and gray and slowing down. So let's just put that aside. But uh, but uh, I've heard others say the same thing that it, it, of course it does allow. We I talked with uh, Mike and Scott um, from WHYY earlier in the spring about the impact on um, psychiatric services and and of course telemedicine has been important. Um, for that as well, people who need mental health services. But Chris, you're probably already talking with parents about vaccines at this point. I mean, you're always talking with parents about vaccines, certainly. Um, and of course, everybody's thinking about COVID vaccines. Some think they're going to come sooner than later. How are you already messaging the COVID-19 vaccine? Um. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think early on, before we really knew much about these specific vaccine candidates, people would ask, and I would say, I'll be first in line. Definitely get it. Full speed ahead. That's our only ticket out of this mess. Um, now that we're seeing data and going through uh, phase one, phase two, phase three trials, and uh, really having to be critical about whether these vaccines are safe and effective, uh, you know, I, I would say I'm uh, more vaccine cautious or, or I guess I would say show me the data. Um, your recent guest, Dr. Paul Offit, I heard in a different uh, venue say, you know, someone said, well, what do you say to someone who's vaccine hesitant? And he said, I'm vaccine hesitant. The system has to be vaccine hesitant and prove it. Uh, and so I think that's more where we're at uh, now. I would say, you know, we've always been advocates for vaccinations and uh, encouraging families to keep kids up to date. And, you know, the majority of the vaccines are considered required. And I have the conversation about the flu vaccine, which is not required, but obviously recommended for everybody six months and older um, every year. And so I think it's going to be more similar to that conversation, um, it, what we have year in and year out, convincing families, you know, why they really need to get the flu vaccine, um, and, and with the added um, kind of mystery of, well, is it really safe? Or, yes, it's safe in a phase three trial of thirty thousand people, but what happens when you've vaccinated a million people? Or are we going to start to run into any? Um, rare events? And the answer is yes, we are. And it's a risk benefit assessment. And um, that remains to be seen. Uh, so in any event, I, I think we're poised as pediatricians who've had this conversation many, many times. And, I, you know, many of my the parents of my patients, they don't have a family doctor. You know, I'm kind of their only contact with the medical community if they're otherwise young and healthy, especially the dads, at least the, the moms of my patients have an OB-GYN that they've encountered recently. 
So uh, it's the dads that are sometimes the most fun because they, they're just, they haven't talked to a doctor in who knows how long. <laughs> what you're describing is that you're the, the, the talk that you have to develop about the vaccine is probably going to have to be in constant flux starting from now well into next year based on availability, based on how many people have had it and have their own frame of reference, and then based on what may be negative, you know, some people are going to get, there may be some negative impacts, although we wouldn't expect there to be a large-scale negative impact. How, I guess I'm sort of curious a little bit more about how you fine-tune that message. Will you have help with that? So, you know, we're listening and learning and we have our resources from the American Academy of Pediatrics and uh, various uh, journals and podcasts and all that. And so it, a lot of it is just a, a nuanced conversation. And uh, it really, I, I kind of start uh, any conversation of, about uh, vaccines, just allowing them, to, the, the parents to ask questions. and sometimes it's really straightforward you know like i'm not sure i should get this vaccine i'm worried about the mercury in the vaccine right. like well you know we haven't had mercury in the vaccines for 20 years and even when we did it wasn't a problem but it was better to get rid of it uh, and not have it in there and they're like oh okay that's easy let's get the vaccines so right. sometimes it's a real straightforward thing and sometimes it's you know it goes really deep and they've gone off the deep end online uh, and uh it's it can be a harder conversation, uh, mainly just yeah, instead of just giving my spiel and, and blasting them with, with too much information right off the bat, just trying to understand where their hesitancy comes from. Uh, this will be the same deal. Uh, it's we're, it's going to be a work in progress and, and you sort of craft it over time. It's you just get more and more, you know, little things in your bag of tricks about talking about vaccines. I don't mean to say tricks because it's not a, uh, I'm not trying to trick anyone, but just more tools, uh, more ways of more talking tools, about absolutely. it. Yeah. Well, we're almost, we are up on time, but I'm going to get just a quick, um, one final little quick hit um, from each of you thinking ahead. Um, Bonnie, how do you think medical education is going to change coming out of this? Well, good question. I do think all these impacts of the, telehealth thing is definitely going to change how we teach medical students as well. Um, I think there's going to be, I hope there's going to be more perspective on sort of things of preparedness, public health issues and the importance of those, which I think are probably getting given a little bit of the short shrift in most medical school curriculums, to be honest. And I hope that this changes that and what we call the social determinants of disease uh, definitely has been shown to be things we cannot ignore during this COVID epidemic. It's absolutely relevant. So I hope that this becomes a positive. Um, I've heard from some people that are anxious to go and, you know, go to medical school so they can be part of the taking care of COVID patients. I think that's incredibly awesome. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it just, after a lot of years in some cases where it felt like uh, the medical profession was sort of not particularly respected, I guess is the one word. It's kind of nice to feel like at least that our contributions are being valued again, because there's been times when that hasn't been the feeling. So. Chris, same question to you. Take us out on this. Yeah, you know, I, would, I agree with what Bonnie just mentioned. It's, it's um, I often, as I'm leaving the exam room at the end of a, vid of a visit, um, I'll say something along the lines of stay healthy or, uh, you know, be careful. I've said that for a long, long time. And what I'm getting back from parents is you too, you, you be careful. You need to stay healthy. And they're realizing that, that what we're doing is, is in some, in, in some sense, putting our, ourselves in harm's way. And so I am very curious to see if, hopefully um, the folks who are moving forward in a career in medicine are, uh, are realizing are, are really, this needs to be right. This needs to be um, what's really in my heart and not just because it seems like a cool job. Um, 
And so I, I think it may self-select uh, a better crop, I, I hope. Um, so that's, that's my optimistic thought um, for where we're headed. I like your optimistic thought. And if my students are any indication, uh, we're going to have a generation of absolutely dedicated um, young people going into professions from environment uh, and medicine uh, in those areas, I think, particularly um, because this is the world they're coming up into. There are real crises out there. Uh, and I think, I think we have to have the hope and optimism that they're going to be able to come up and make a, make a real difference. I want to thank my guests today, Chris Strawn and Bonnie Rowett, for taking the time to talk on COVID calls. I know they've got a lot of other things to do, and Bonnie has her stack of, uh, of uh, literature to read. You said you stopped by 9.30, so you've got a couple of hours left to, to get some of those papers read. Um, I want to remind everybody that uh, tomorrow we'll be talking with Alex Wellerstein, and he is the creator of NukeMap, and we'll be talking with Alex about data visualization and COVID-19. And thanks again to my guests. Stay healthy. Appreciate everything you're doing. Stay my healthy, pleasure. Everybody. Thanks, Scott. You bet. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.